Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Alex. How are you doing today? Oh, great. Thanks. Long time listener, first time caller. Very excited to join you today. I'm also very excited. So uh, I know you and Dan are working on a project for this upcoming SOMSA, which by the time this comes out should be happening in a couple of days. Um, so uh, what 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 is your uh, kind of theme of your talk? Yeah, so I guess credit where credit's due. This is mostly Rick and Dan's idea. And so the um, a standard caveat that I usually give in addition to the show opener caveat, which is uh, anything that I say that's really smart today is definitely not my idea. That is 100% from Dan and Rick and other smart people that I've just stolen and parroted. And if I say anything dumb today, then that's definitely me getting something wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, I was out with Rick on a FTX and, and Dan ended up coming in and um, the two of them really latched on to an idea that they have started to foment and foster over the last couple of years. Uh, they'll be presenting that at SOMSA this year. And in chatting with Paul a couple of weeks ago, he really liked this idea. And his question to us was, how else are we going to help uh, communicate this out to the wider community that is unfortunately not going to be able to attend SOMSA this year. And so we're really hoping to kind of start a, a conversation on this topic and engage the community, get feedback and see how we can improve, perhaps even break this and, and get it better for the operational folks out there who need assistance taking care of critically ill patients. Oh, so, I mean, what gaps did you find? Yeah, so Rick's idea was that we have done a great job in GWAT with defining the different phases of care in TC3, and we all know those quite well, the care under fire, tactical field care, and CASVAC care. And a lot of the educators out there, when we're working with our partner forces or even teaching our conventional or non-medical folks, end up saying that TC3 is the basis for PFC. We haven't defined similar phases of care in PFC, and I think it's to the detriment for those who like to think about care in an organized mindset. So, I mean, are you talking something different than like rock truck house plane, or I guess, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And again, I would say the smart idea here came from Rick. And what Rick said is, TC3 may not necessarily be the best way to frame our thought process about PFC. And, and his point is really that March is probably how our medics should be thinking about taking care of their patients. Because as we know well from uh, many great publications, you think about March when you're in care under fire. You also think about March maybe through a different lens when you're in tactical field care and, and the same as TACAVAC. And so Rick's point is we should continue to think about March irrespective of the setting that we're in, but maybe we think about it through a different lens when we're in prolonged field care. And, you know, uh, Dan also made the excellent point that um, similar thought process for doctors, when we take our advanced trauma life support course and we're still taught the A, B, C, D, E, we're still doing that same algorithmic approach, um, whether we are in the resuscitation bay, whether we're in an ambulance or perhaps even in a tent out in the middle of nowhere. 
And in my practice setting, doing trauma surgery and, and critical care, we have kind of a, a similar thought process when we do damage control surgery to, I think, how we're thinking about prolonged field care. So in damage control surgery, before we even take the patient for that initial surgery, we have to initially resuscitate the patient. We have to get their hemodynamics up to a state where they can tolerate getting their blood pressure dumped when we paralyze them and put them under positive pressure ventilation. Because, of course, as we know, when you put those patients on positive pressure, you impede their venous return to their, their heart, and so their blood pressure tanks. You paralyze them to intubate them, their blood pressure tanks. And many of us in the community have done a great job, unfortunately, killing a lot of our trauma patients by inadequately resuscitating them before we intubate them and take them to the OR. And then that's phase zero of damage control surgery. Phase one is really the initial surgery. And all we do is quickly get into the belly or the chest, stop bleeding, restore vascular flow, usually with shunting, and stop bowel spillage because that's going to be your future sepsis patient. Then we immediately get that patient out of the OR and get them back up to the ICU where we can normalize their hemodynamics and normalize their physiology with either component therapy or external uh, coagulation adjuncts. And then, of course, in a delayed manner, we're going to leisurely, hopefully, take our patient back to the operating room and do that definitive surgery. And so Rick uh, mostly is the driving force for this. Again, he deserves all the credit. And he's come up with a similar way to think about approaching your PFC patient. And as every MBA um, graduate out there knows, the most important part of any business project is you've got to start with a snappy acronym. And of course, Rick has nailed that. So the um, acronym that he's running now is Peace Knot. What do you think about that, Dennis? <laughs> Peace Knot? <laughs> it, it's made for the operational medic. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's got that to sounds good. It's got to work well for, for most of us. And so um, right. Rick's way of thinking about it is preparation, stabilization, normalization, observation, and transportation. Um, it's an easy way to remember it, right. easy way when you're sleep deprived, easy way to brief it to your commanders, um, an easy way maybe even yeah. to teach it to some of our partner forces who may not be primarily English speakers. Um, oh, so, sounds, I mean, it sounds very good. Yeah, and and again, there's going to be much more on this topic at SOMSA that Rick and Dan are going to be able to brief, and I would encourage folks to please, please attend there if they can. Uh, we're also hopefully trying to get this published in JSON, and not to make it prescriptive um, or algorithmic for folks, but again, just to socialize this within the organization, the enterprise, and the community to see how we can make this better. Um, and so our initial idea is for PFC with preparation that includes good logistics planning ahead of time, good training in TC3, and then good TC3, because that really is how you save patients, most importantly. And so from a PFC mindset, when you, once you have successfully completed the preparation, then you move on to stabilization. And so that's where we tend to see trading out of different interventions through the March algorithm again. Um, for example, you could trade out a needle decompression for a chest tube. You could change out perhaps a 
supraglottic airway for a definitive airway. Um, perhaps that field expedient IO, you, you could trade out for a better prepared IV. And then after stabilization, you would move on to normalization. And that's, again, where we would expect the patient's physiology to get normalized and correct coagulopathies. And these are time periods that are going to take hours to days. Um, when we train some of our partner forces, this is usually the first several hours of the patient care or the PJs I love always have a, a really good mad minute and then they move on to stabilizing their patient with the entire team. But then once they've done that stabilization, then they break into their work rest cycles. And that would be essentially watching your critical care interventions have their effect on your patient, normalizing them. And then moving on to observation, that's could be a period of days to perhaps even weeks in the prolonged field care environment. And if you are able to normalize and return your patient to a normal status, this observation period may even include physical rehab in the A2AD environment. And then, of course, the last chain of survival, as we're liking to call this, is transportation. So that could include security planning, um, patient packaging, admin support, and your logistics. And that's our idea so far. It is very nascent. And I say our idea. I have very little to do with this, but I think it's really, really smart. I like hearing about it, and I'd like to support it. What are your thoughts? What do you think so far that we could do better? Um, I like it. Okay, it flows very well. Definitely logical in its uh, progression. Now, just like, you know, care under fire, you know, tachyvac, like all the different stages that we know about T-TRI-C, any of those phases can, you can move forward or move back depending on, um, you know, the tactical situation. So an example off the top I'm thinking is, okay, obviously, preparation, right? We get a casualty, we get them stabilized, but now I need to transport to get them to somewhere where I can, you know, optimize the resuscitation. Um, I have two units of blood, but the guy needs 12 units of blood. We need to move, um, we need to move him back to you know, a more secure location. We need to move him to where we have more resources uh, stocked, right? Then we can do our stabilization, or then we finish our stabilization, moving into optimization, right? And then maybe we need to transport again to get him to more uh, definitive type stabilization. You know, so I would say just off my off my head, I I like the the logical progression of it. Just recognizing that you can't be married to an algorithm. You have to be fluid throughout, and in each of those phases, I would think, anyway, March um, dominates. Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm glad you brought that up because you are 100% right, and, and Rick uh, continues to say that as well, and, and I fail too, which is uh, just to your point, it, it certainly can skip and go forward and back. And I think your community knows that better than many, especially with the UW uh, mindset that you guys have. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's just from because that's just what I think about all the time. So, <laughs> um, but uh, 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And also, before we started recording, you and I were talking about how we should really start thinking about what the next conflict may entail for our community. And it may likely look a lot like what is currently going on in Eastern Europe. And that is a very complex UW environment, uh, to your point, which goes forward and backward and may stagnate for days um, before skipping forward in this chain of survival quickly. And, and that is incredibly chaotic, sounds stressful. And fortunately, your community members are experts in that domain. Well, thank you. Um, thankfully, I also don't have firsthand experience uh, having to deal with that, but uh, um, I do read and I do like to learn from other people's mistakes. So one thing that comes to mind with the observation phase, um, just from your experience, say I have a you know multi-system trauma patient, we've stabilized them to the best of our abilities. Let's say we do have hemorrhage control. We've resuscitated them to the best of our abilities and now we're kind of in this observation type zone he can't stay here next to me. We need to move, and we can't move fast enough with him and his 12 other buddies. I need to be able to disposition him to a another location where his observation is probably not as reliable as far as he might be sitting in a cave or he might be sitting in a basement or a farmer's barn or wherever essentially by himself for, you know, six, 12, 24 hours, um, how would I know that this person is safe enough? Like it's not going to die in the 12 hours or the 24 hour period. How can I, like what kind of goals do I need to look for that this person is okay to stick him in a place like that so that maybe in, a day or two days, I can round back around uh, to his location and, and uh, continue observation. Mm, boy, you are not helping with the easy questions, my friend. <laughs> I, mean, well, you're, I mean, you're a, a surgical PA. Like. <laughs> yeah, that is a loaded question. Well, again, I would lean back on our conversation before recording, which is that this becomes a gestalt, just like getting really good at shooting. You can't be a good shooter without putting in the sets and reps and spending multiple days every week at the range. You can't get good at understanding critical care patients without taking care of critical care patients on a regular basis. And so, you know, we could, of course, give folks the algorithm that our PACU nurses use postoperatively for when patients are safe to discharge home. Um, but that's going to miss a lot of patients, especially a lot of critically ill patients. Um, my metric when I'm taking care of a postoperative patient on the med surge floor and they're getting close to going home, it, I'm a simple boy. I like cold beer and I like to think about things in an easy way. And so mine is eat, drink, pee, poo. So I like to tell my patients that if you can eat, drink, pee, poo by yourself, um, then you are safe to go home by yourself. There's certainly a lot more to it, but if you can maintain those basic functions, um, stay hydrated, manage your own bodily functions without being concerned for contamination or possible infections, skin breakdowns, and you can stay warm, you know, that's going a long way. 
We also always used to teach, and I bet you probably still teach in the schoolhouse, the survival rule of threes, which is totally inaccurate and should not be taught, but it is a nice way to think about it, um, <laughs> which is you can survive for three minutes without oxygen, uh, three hours without protection from the environment, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Um, and again, that is in no way, shape, or form accurate. However, I do know Sean is a big proponent in the PFC environment of not putting too much effort in enteral feeds for folks. So if you were to send somebody out to sit on their own, all that is to say, they definitely need to stay warm and they need to stay hydrated, but we probably don't need to worry as much about them eating in a couple of days. Does that jive with your thought process okay. for sitting on a patient? Yeah, I mean, um, it was a, 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 a hidden softball pass. I mean, I think it's uh, you have to have experience. That's the bottom line. You can't go by an algorithm, um, you know, because patients, um, they get better, they get worse, they stay the same, and all of the above are true. Um, you know, I think your your idea of like, well, if they can eat on their own, they can drink on their own, and they can handle uh, daily living things on their own, they're probably pretty safe to convalesce essentially on their own, as long as they have access to resources um, or somebody can help them get resources. So I think, you know, what you said is 100% correct in that, you know, in that, that kind of basic algorithm, this person is safe to, to handle their own business. Um, likewise, you know, you have to have the experience to know that, you know, this person who is probably malnourished to begin with, um, we've resuscitated in the best of our ability. Um, you know, we've, we've kind of gotten them over the hump of, you know, things are probably going to trend up from here. Okay. He is safe to at least go to this level. Like maybe he can't, he's not the guy to go to the cave. Maybe he's the guy that goes to the, the farmer's barn where the guy can look in on him, you know, once or twice a day and make sure that he has, you know, water, it's, you know, fresh bandages or whatever particulars that person needs. And I'm kind of triaging my disposition based on what resources I have available. Because at the end of the day, if, and it's very selfish to say, but if the medical team can't survive because of the patients, then I'm not helping anybody. Yeah, I think the social media influencers would uh, remind us that you have to put on your own oxygen mask first, is what I'm saying. Of course, uh, at <laughs> least my N95, of course, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But this is a, a great reminder um, you know, that but, we do yeah. need to be good at having an organized thought process to taking care of patients. I will argue that Peace Not really is a pretty good one in the PFC environment. I mm -hmm. would encourage folks to attend Rick and Dan's presentation. They are the uh, motivators and really the originators of this idea. Let's try and make it better for the environment. In, and then foot stomping on the conversation that you and I had ahead of time. You can't get good at taking care of critically ill patients without taking care of critically ill patients. And I know Jim Zarnick and many, many other 
dedicated high-speed individuals at 1FC and elsewhere within the community have worked incredibly tirelessly hard at creating opportunities for soft medics to get sets and reps at medical refresher training opportunities out there. And it is incumbent upon us if we love and care for our colleagues on the team that we go out and we become proficient at taking care of them when our dearest friends get injured. And so if you are not finding the time and the white space to go and take advantage of those medical refresher training opportunities, you are doing something wrong and your commander is not prioritizing the life-sustaining skill op- skills, training, and techniques that we have to offer our far forward teams. Um, so please do reach out to those in your community to take advantage of medical refresher training because you can't be good at taking care of critically ill patients unless you're good at taking care of critically ill patients from lots and lots of training. Yep, I definitely, I 100% agree. Um, I do have two points. One, I guess, addressing commanders, because um, God knows they won't listen to someone like me. Maybe they'll listen to docs like you, um, PAs like you. But, you know, we look at current conflicts around the world, like let's just take Ukraine as an example, um, like the medical infrastructure that they've created, I I would argue is at least as important as you know, the new tanks, the new rockets, the new weapons that we've provided us and, and uh, the rest of the world, because it gives each of those fighters the confidence that if I get injured, I will be taken care of to the best of uh, my teams, my uh, units, my country's abilities. And I think that is a deciding factor that we talk about, we give lip service to, but people are demonstrating it currently that medical care and that confidence that brings, that fosters is, I think, a deciding factor in uh, in the success of an operation like this. That's point one. Um, Point two is more of a, question than a rant. Um, so you work at a facility. I I want to come to your facility and train on really sick people. And, you know, I want to make all the decisions. I want to have all the stress on me. I want, you know, to be there, you know, on the, on the bleeding edge of medicine. Um, however, I need to have the skills in order to be that person, right? To inspire the confidence that lets a provider like yourself let me have a little more uh, rope as it, as it would. What kind of things would you want me to come prepared to do so that I can now, you know, worry about the more advanced things? Mm. Well, fortunately, special operations medics have the most important tool in your armamentarium, which is humility. If you guys can handle two years of getting your teeth kicked in um, and doing things wrong and, and suffering the consequences, then, you know, that in my mind really 
um, brings a lot to the fight when it comes to helping me manage critically ill patients, either in the recess bay or in the ICU, um, and will certainly go a long way towards extending that leash. And I mean, it, it goes uphill too, right? There are several times per week when I will rope in my trauma surgeon and say, hey, this is either beyond my knowledge or legally I am unable to do X or Y and I just need your help. And and they appreciate that despite, you know, having done this for 15 years or so, there's always the time to call for help. Um, and we always appreciate that when our special operations medics show up and, and have that mindset. Um, and then make sure that you marry yourself at the hip to whoever your champion is at that facility. And I will say that, again, this community has some outstanding leadership that has reached out to um military civilian partnership training institutions. And each of those has been selected only because they have a local civilian champion to help um, push our special operation medics into unique opportunities within those facilities and support and enable them to practice at the top of their scope and licensure, whatever that may be with the MILSIV partnership. Um, we also have coming online the AM. TC3 facilities through the Army, which are going to be some outstanding high-volume trauma centers where our surgical teams will be embedded. And I would not be at all surprised to see opportunities for our soft medics to practice alongside those folks. Because, you know, again, when Dan and Rick and I set up some really great training that is led by both soft medics as well as doctors, we tend to see the most bang for the buck for both soft medics and doctors, when we're able to flow through those patients from POI care, where the soft medics are teaching, to PFC, where usually it's soft medics teaching. Um, and then the soft medics get to follow those patients and roll into your far forward austere surgical teams and help those teams provide the next level of care. And that's really how we get better at taking care of our patients is seeing what the rest of our colleagues can do. And I'm actually even reminded of a wonderful lecture I heard a few years ago at one of the trauma um, annual conferences. And it was somebody who was getting a lifetime achievement award. And he said, we don't get better at sitting within our own wheelhouse. We get better at reaching out and learning from our partners and our colleagues. And he gave the example as a trauma surgeon of having a really, really sick trauma patient uh, come in who had just a shattered liver. And the patient, by all rights, should have died with him on the table. But he had recently said, you know, I'm not comfortable with liver trauma. And so he'd gone and scrubbed with one of his hepatobiliary uh, surgical colleagues and learned how to do some very advanced trauma surgery. And lo and behold, when this patient came in, he felt comfortable because he had expanded his wheel set. Um, and uh, actually just last week, Doc Remley made the recommendation for a good book that I have on my to-do list called Range, uh, which says that those folks who have extended breadth tend to be more effective. And that certainly imbues the soft medic mindset, but we need to find time as soft medics to be good at soft medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely like what you said about the humility, um, because I think in general we are. I think we're pretty good at um, self-assessing our strengths and weaknesses. Um, and this was kind of many years ago when telemedicine 
first started coming online is, uh, you know, and I was brand new to this new prolonged field care group. And I raised my hand in front of all these uh, senior enlisted and colonels and a bunch of people that I didn't really have a business speaking. Um, but I asked them, at what point in the training are you going to start incorporating this? Because I can tell you um, at no point in the training is it okay for you not to know the answer. So when is it that you want people to come to those terms and then call out for help? Hmm. If that makes sense. Um, so I think understanding your true capabilities and just reaching out to whomever else, right? If they don't know, that's too easy. Go to somebody else. If they don't know, go to somebody else. You know, you get a bits and pieces from all over the community and everybody's, every specialty has their strengths and weaknesses and things that they're comfortable with um, and not comfortable with um, for whatever reason, just reaching out to all of them and trying to absorb what you can I think is going to make you a lot more holistic in your abilities and give you a lot more tools in your toolbox when it comes to, you know, the operational prolonged field care type environment when you have to improvise literally probably everything or next to everything. So I will come full circle and pick up your previously mentioned mantra that the U.S. military has a expanded influence with our partners because we work by, with, and through them, and we bring a force multiplying capability when we augment our host nation and partner forces with our enhanced medical care. That is one of the unique capabilities that we have, and I, I think those in the community have heard time and time again that if the U.S. will um, supplement some partner force with one of our special operations surgical teams of some variety, we can get them to fight their own fight. And we don't have to commit um, America's sons and daughters to that fight. So you out there as special operations medics, I need to help me enhance our medical capability from the doc's perspective, because as a provider, it has been a humbling education to learn about operational medicine from soft medics. And so please, when you're out there on the team, I would love it if you would grab some young Docker PA and drag them out into the field and you teach them about operational medicine. Because I can tell you, we get really good education about clinical medicine, but we don't know a darn thing about operational medicine until you guys, the experts, teach us and then together we can create a force multiplying effect to um, enable completion of the national defense strategy and the strategic aims and complete the mission for the ground force commander but it is absolutely a two-way street and we need your help teaching and we need your help learning to make that happen and i hope that peace not is a helpful framework to both learn and teach our partner forces in this new pfc domain that i think we will all find ourselves in soon now, when you talk about inviting, um, you're more than welcome to come to our course, and we will put you through the paces for certain. Yeah, that, that would be super fun. I've had that on my to-do list for a while, but um, life keeps getting in the way. But that would be really, really fun. Uh, I'm actually hoping maybe you could help 
in that same mindset, um, push out a little something. So, um, I have wanted to come to the refresher training and just sit at the, um, small table discussions because I, it sounds like that is such a great opportunity to learn about what's going on in the field and current practices. And actually for the last couple of years at SOMSA, um, we've been trying to figure out how to use that to drive practices forward. And, and unfortunately our, the submission last year got accepted, but we were all deployed. And so this year, the program director, uh, Andy O, a friend of the community, um, is putting together what he's calling a field to table. And so he is picking up the baton of this idea of asking soft medics what clinical questions are important. You know, what gaps are there in care delivery? What current treatments do we have that we don't know if they're effective? You know, what what questions are out there essentially coming from the small table discussions and then from a field to table perspective really trying to figure out how we can rope in military research uh, military research funders um, surgeons clinicians all that sort of thing and perhaps steward these ideas from the soft medic all the way through to completion of really a scientific answer to those questions and I think it's an awesome project. I'm super excited about it. Um, and we really need soft medics who want to participate in that type of endeavor to show up for it to be successful. So if you know of anybody interested, please, please spread the word. Because the instead of farm to table, like, you know, a hippie farmer, it's field to table. And the more folks okay. we can get, the better. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate your time, Dennis. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.